guess I'll delve into it a bit first. So when I first started at Bird and Bird, I kind of sold in intellectual property. Um, and within my first week, I was put on this case, and it was literally to this day it's probably my favorite case. Um, I won't go into too much detail; I don't want to bore everyone. But it, it is a pretty interesting. So it was two. Ger- it was a German company and a U.S. pharma. Uh, it's all public. So I'm sure I can talk about it. So there was Mac. So German company called Mac, which is a pharma company, and there's a U.S. one of the same name. And actually, they used to be the same company. And post World War One, the U.S. branch became independent, obviously, because of the war. Um, so it was claimed on the US side, two separate companies doing the same thing with the same name. And then in 1955, something like that, they came to an agreement where German Merck would be able to use the name Merck globally, but not North America. And the US Merck would call themselves Merck in North America, but MSD, which stands for Merck Sharp and Dome, in the rest of the world. So that was the agreement, 1955. And then when I was, when I joined the firm, it turned out that US Nike had been calling themselves Nike everywhere. So we were suing them for both breach of contract and also trademark. Um, so I started first week there, um, partner on the case and my supervisor, they came to me and they said, look, there's an event in London by the Tower of London. It's a pharma tech IT event and both Mark, who's our client, will be speaking, German Mark and also US Mark. Can you go there and just gather, like, hide in the shadows, don't speak to anyone unless you have to, and just take notes, just watch, just see if US MSD calls themselves mad, because that's trademarking, you can take notes, pictures, capture as much evidence as Hey everybody, welcome to the GMI Rocket Show. I'm your host, Roman Zelchenko. Today we have a really exciting um, interview with our guest who's coming to us from the UK. Today's episode number 83, and our guest today is Zan Ali, who is the co-founder and CEO of a company called Centuro Global. So Centuro Global is um, what, what they, they go by many different descriptions. They do a lot of different really cool things. Um, right now, the best way that I can describe them is a global expansion platform. So they are an organization that helps companies extend globally, right? Which is something that has come up quite a bit, especially during COVID and the post-COVID world of opening remote offices, hiring remote staff, and kind of looking at international expansion. Um, Centuro Global touches on a lot of things, including, of course, immigration, global ability, but other things, including tax and and sort of setting up a business abroad. Um, About me, I'm a former immigration attorney. I uh, now am an entrepreneur. I started a company called Laborless, which is um, a startup that automates H-1B visa compliance, as well as GMI Rocket, which is a, which is a digital marketing agency, I'm sorry, that um, focuses on immigration and global mobility. So I'm excited to talk to Zen. Uh, without further ado, Zen, thank you so much for joining and uh, for being here. And I'm super excited to learn about everything Centuro Global is doing. Hey, Roman. No, thank you very much for having me. Very happy to be here. Didn't think a trip to Vegas would land me on your famous podcast. <laughs> Well, you know, a lot of things happen in Vegas. This is a productive one, getting, uh, you know, <laughs> meeting you and having great conversations there. And, um, you know, thank you for being here. I know it's late again in UK. It's 4 p.m. Eastern here in New York. And uh, like, is it 10 p.m. or 11 p.m.? Uh, we're next. 9 p.m. So it's 9 p.m. Oh, right. Because of daylight savings. I forget. Okay, great. So it's early. It's early. Um, so for folks who are watching and joining us live, uh, you know, let us know. Leave a comment below. Let us know who you are. You know where you work, where you're uh, tuning in from, and um, 
you know, leave us comments and questions along the way, especially as we're getting into the conversation. If you have any questions um, for Zen or for myself, you know, leave them in the comments. We'll, it's really fun to kind of interact with folks live and, and bring that stuff up. And again, tell us where you are. And if you like the conversation, give it a thumbs up or a heart or a laughing emoji, whatever um, makes you happy and depending on the platform you're watching on. Um, and by the way, I'm getting over a little cold. So if, if I sound a little bit off, I'm sort of just getting my, my voice back and uh, trying not to sound too nasal. So uh, bear with me on that. So, um, you know, Zen, so, uh, you know, again, thank you for being here. And I know you're you're in uh, in the UK and we talked about this briefly a little bit. You were born in, is it, was it in London or are you born outside of London? I just, I want to. Okay. You're born yeah, in London. London. Cool. Um, so I, I, you know, I live in New York. I was raised here. I, I moved here, however, when I was two. So I kind of, you know, I'm in this weird in between where I don't really remember anything from, you know, being born and now the former Soviet Union and, and like my, all of my memories are here. But you were sharing a little bit with me of, of kind of, I guess your mom had a similar past. She was born uh, in, in Pakistan where, you know, your family in part is from. Uh, but can you talk a little bit about that? I, I always find it really cool to sort of, if possible, learn a little bit about the immigration sort of story of, of my guests' families, if, if you will. Yeah, sure. So like you just said, my family comes from Pakistan. So I think the story started with my granddad, really. So he was kind of sent to the UK by my grandma. She was like, go on, head over there, be a better life. So he set off by himself by land. So he trekked across continents from Pakistan, went through Iran. Uh, this is in the 60s. So I guess back then Iran was pretty liberal, unlike the situation today, which is quite great. Um, but he spent time there, met some great people. Then he went all the way through Turkey and the rest of Europe, eventually coming for, to the UK, um, got a job here. And he spent, I think it was a year, he spent working in the UK trying to build a life um, before he could fly over my grandma and my mum, who was essentially one years old at the time, something like that. Um, and then came over and then grew the family. And then I was fortunate enough to be to be born in London. That's so cool. Um, and what what kind of was it kind of I don't know if you know about know about it, but was it difficult? Do you know at the time to kind of get your family over here from from Pakistan once your once your grandfather was already here? Yeah, I, I think because of the whole history, you know, I mean, Pakistan's seventy five years old as a country, um, all came out of the former British Empire. So I think that was it was pretty easy for people from right. Pakistan, India to come to the UK. It was more a case of costs and expense and being set up and being able to you know create a proper life now has your family always sort of been in in london and, and kind of nearby areas yeah pretty much so i was born in east london so family's pretty much always been there and, and i guess you grew up going to school in in london as well and all throughout high school yeah so my roots have always kind of been in london i mean i've done a lot of traveling i don't know close to 60 countries every continent um so it's always been a big thing for me uh, i think when i was when when I graduated university, I had a bit of time um, before I started my career in law. So I thought I'd need to go traveling. Just had this itch. Even before that, even when I was in university, I got an internship in China. I worked in a law firm in Beijing. Then, then when I was about 21, 22, this opportunity came up to work in India, um, which I was really keen because it was working for the Indian Premier League. So it was a cricket team out there. I don't know how many viewers know much about cricket. Um, but essentially, it was a six-week tournament. You got players from all over the world, all the teams are owned by famous celebrities. It was kind of like a, I don't know, just this amazing show that they put on. 
And so I applied, got the job. I was going to be an event host. So I'd look after VIP guests in the stadium and get to hang out with the team. So I was like, this is going to be awesome. It was just an internship. And then I had to apply for the visa. Everything was going well. And then it turned out there was this question on the Indian visa application. Do you have Pakistani heritage? Because obviously I'm born in the UK. I've got a British passport. Um, so I was like, okay, I do. What do I say to this? And then it was like, you have to list. If it if it's a yes, they don't give you a visa. Anyone can get a visa within like a minute. You submit the thing, you get an email confirmation about a visa to India. As soon as you take the Pakistan thing, you get a completely different form. I had to list like all my family, ancestry, dates they were born. I just list every country I've ever been to, where I've traveled. It was the longest application for ever. And then they were like, you need to submit your passport. They're going to take six months. I was like, six months? The intention starts in like six weeks. Um, so basically, I couldn't go in the end. So that was my best kind of experience. So uh, yeah, work visas and relocate. Wow. That also, you know, kind of goes to show that you could feel sort of unrelated to a historic sort of geopolitical, you know, issue or uh, that, that, that can still impact an immigration challenge for you today. Um, it's really fascinating how, and, and those laws do evolve. I think recently, I'm not a UK immigration expert and I don't want to go into this direction here, but I think just recently, um, UK updated, uh, nationality, uh, um, law citizenship by, uh, in, in like somebody who's on their mother's side was of potential English, you know, background or heritage could, and who lives outside of the UK can now apply for citizenship where before I think it was only on the father's side or something like that. Like, and that might be, if there's anyone listening or, or watching who, you know, can confirm or deny this, please do. But it was something like that. And it's just a reminder how even today, very basic immigration laws can continue to change and shift that can be influenced by sort of something that was very far in the past. So it's fascinating. And I'm sorry that didn't happen. It sounds like a very cool internship to hang out with VIP folks and, and, the, and the athletes. That's like a dream. It's like a I went to yeah. Argentina instead, spent three months there. It was the best trip I went wow. out. So everybody helps so much. That's right. Um, so I, I'm curious, so as you were growing up in you know in London as a young, even just a schoolboy, were you kind of more entrepreneurial, you know, the kind of quote unquote lemonade stand type of kid, or were you more studious or you know, I don't know, what what were you like a little bit as if that you can remember? Yeah, I mean I wish I could say I set up a lemonade stand, I didn't. Um I was probably more studious. I used to love reading. Uh, I love sport as well. So I played at literally every sport, football, cricket, basketball, tennis. Um, and then I think on the reading side, that's, I was just obsessed with books. I think it's because of my mum. when I was a kid, she used to just come home from work every day with a pile of books. In a week I'd read them all. She'd have to go, well, you finished the house. And she'd go back to the bookshop, get the next batch. And I remember one day I just found this pile of books at home. I was, must've been 10 years old. I don't even know where they came from, but it was a pile of John Grisham books. Um, I was probably a bit young to be reading those in the tent, but I got through a whole bunch of them um, in no time. And I was like, this is awesome. I want to be a lawyer. So that's kind of how that, that started. But I guess, yeah, other than that, wow. I don't know, it sounds a bit nerdy, but you know, I'm pretty much that in sport, especially football and cricket. Did you, did you ever read uh, John Grisham's book, Playing for Pizza? Oh no, I haven't read that. So, 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 so that's like a, it, it's not a legal thriller, but it's um, I actually forget the premise, but it was about a football player. I think it was an American football player who kind of had something to do with the pizza shop, or I, I don't remember the details, but it had it, it was a John Grisham non-legal novel that I remember picking up, thinking, "Oh, this will be interesting." And it was pretty good, 
but maybe something for you to check out and you know get to you like playing for pizza yeah um i wish i had it I, it's it's somewhere in another room I'd, I'd pick it up and, and show you here uh but that that that's awesome i mean look the the reality is you know different people find law in different you know for, in, in different ways i i you know i went to law school kind of because i ended up studying philosophy in college as a second major and um i really loved my like legal political philosophy classes and i thought to myself i don't want to work in finance which is the direction i was heading and law school would give me a way to continue to explore different topics and have sort of like philosophical you know debates but interestingly enough when i was a kid i remember my cousin came over i must have been eight you know or something or nine and i don't know why the conversation came up i guess you know what do you want to be when you grow up and i I had I, re- I remember having this. I had a little sticky note that said like I want to be a lawyer, and I specifically remember that I misspelled the word lawyer. But I don't know how I knew about that. So it's interesting how like these moments right in our life kind of either consciously or subconsciously sh- uh, shape what we end up doing. Um, so okay, you you definitely obviously John Grisham left an imprint on you. Did you actually hold that feeling of I want to be a lawyer all throughout kind of secondary school and, and into your university applications? I did, but not exclusively. So being a lawyer was always like very, very high up on the list. But I kind of want to do a lot of other things. Now, to be honest, it's a bit it's a bit of a dumb reason, but it started off because of movies. So not just John Grisham, but I remember watching a few good men, Tom Cruise. And that for me is like one of my favorite films. And just, you know, the end scene where he's trying to trying to catch him. He's like, Did you order the code red? I was like, All right, I need to get up in the stand. I want to be doing this. Yeah, that would be so cool. So you know, there was the movie side, but then I oh, had so many different interests. You know, at one point I thought maybe um, I could be a cricketer. I wanted to be a spy. I wanted to be a detective. But I thought I could be an author. There was all sorts of football agent. I was like, if I could be a cricketer, I'm not going to be good enough to do that. Maybe I can be a sports agent. I mean, there, was, there were a lot of different things, but lawyer was always you know, very high up on the list. Hey, for what it's worth, um, one of the things that really pushed me into law school was my cousin Vinny. <laughs> <laughs> a little bit different, less, less intense, but so yeah. funny. Um, yeah, I, that, that's that's cool. I mean, I guess part of the thing too with a, with a law degree is you sort of can do a lot of these. I mean, maybe being a cricketer is you don't need a law degree, but you know, if you want to be an international spy, having a legal knowledge is probably not going to hurt you, um, or what have you. And certainly in business too. Um, so cool. You, you, so you went off, I guess, into law school, you got into uh, law school, which by the way, the fact that you are able to get a bachelor's of law is just brilliant. And the fact that we in the, in the U S here have to do something else as an undergraduate degree and go on for law school as a doctorate is a whole nother conversation, but well, actually, um, I didn't do that. So I did. Well, okay. Okay. So I studied history at undergraduate level and then went to law school, um, and got the law degree, so it was a similar read to the to the U.S. model. Interesting, and 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 so did you got a bachelor's of history, and then did you have to go get a second, basically LLB, or did you can you could you go into the masters directly from there? Um, so the way it works in the UK, if you do a three year degree not in law, they have something called the graduate diploma in law. So it's a one year course, but it's a three year LLB compressed into one year. So. It was incredibly intense. Um, I mean, I really enjoyed it. I don't know if many people would say that. I, well, I enjoyed the first six months because they were like contract tool, criminal, EU, like everything in your face. And I'm like, wow, this is interesting. Um, when it came to exams, it was just mental. It was literally every module, it was nine days straight. 
So Monday, 9am to midday, three hour exam on criminal. The next day it's contract, the day after it's taught. So you get home, you have your exam, 9 till 12, get home by 1pm, have your lunch. Now you've got a few hours to revise, go to bed, next completely different module. You've got to learn all the case law off by heart, hundreds of cases, so each different, completely different area. Well, so intense, but wow. I get so as well. Wow. That's, that's, and do you think having a history degree was helpful at all? Just out of curiosity. No, for sure. I kind of went into it thinking I'll be a lawyer, but I'd rather study history. Um, cause the skills you get, you know, you analyze, you, you need to analyze history. You need to look at what's going on. Every essay that we did in history, you had to argue a case. So you look at a point in history and you're like presenting arguments, you're finding sources. Um, you typically have to argue against historians and to get the best grades, you have to come up with an original point of view. So for me, it felt very synergistic with law, putting together a case, gathering evidence and presenting. Yeah. Wow. That's fascinating. Um, I want to take a quick pause here. Uh, we got a comment here from Bojan saying, happy Friday, Roman and Zen. Thank you, Bojan. Um, happy Friday to you too. And for anyone else watching, listening, give yourself a shout out. Let us know who you are, where you are in the world, perhaps. Um, and, and, you know, leave us some comments and, and let's, let's, you know, chat here with you. Um, so, so Zen, you know, at this point now you've finished, you have your history degree, you have your law degree, um, you do go on to practice law, right? And you, you I guess you get a job at a fairly prestigious firm, Bird and Bird, um, and you work there for a number of years. And then I, and then I understood from, uh, that you then go sort of in-house to work at, um, an organization that works with kind of musicians and in music industry. You know, I, I'm summarizing a little bit, but I'm curious, kind of, what was your experience as an attorney, maybe both in-house, uh, sorry, as um, outside counsel as a law at a law firm and, and in-house? I mean, you know, was there something that eventually you thought to yourself, you know, I, I don't love this anymore, or was was it kind of, I don't know, walk me through a little bit your experience uh, working as an attorney because you clearly wanted to do this since you were 10 years old. Yeah, well, actually, I already enjoyed it. Um, I had a great time. Bird and bird and in house. Um, so, I guess I'll delve into it a bit first. So, when I first started at Bird and Bird, I kind of started in intellectual property. Um, and within my first week, I was put on this case. And it was literally to this day, it's probably my favorite case. Um, I won't go into too much detail, I don't want to bore everyone, but yeah, it is pretty interesting. So, it was two. It was a German company and a US company, pharma company. Uh, it's all public now, so I can try and talk about it. So, they were, it was Mac. So German company called Merck, which is a pharma company, and there's a US one of the same name. And actually they used to be the same company. And post-World War One, the US branch became independent, obviously, because of the war. Um, so it was turned on the US side, two separate companies doing the same thing with the same name. And then in 1955, something like that, they came to an agreement where German Merck would be able to use the name Merck globally, but not North America. And US Mac would call themselves Mac in North America, but MSD, which stands for Mac Sharp and Dome in the rest of the world. So that was the agreement in 1955. And then when I was when I joined the firm, it turned out that US Mac had been calling themselves Mac everywhere. So we were suing them for both breach of contract and also trademark infringement. Um so I started first week there, um, partner on the case and my supervisor, they came to me and said, Look, there's an event in London by the Tower of London. It's a pharma tech IT event, and both Mark, who's our client, will be speaking, German Mark, and also US Mark. Can you go there and just gather, like, hide in the shadows, don't speak to anyone unless you have to, and just take notes, just watch, just see if US MSD calls themselves Mark, because that's trademarking, you can take notes, pictures, capture as much evidence as you can. 
So I showed up at this event, trying to blend in, not talk to anyone, sat in the audience, and you asked Mark to vote first. And the guy presenting this kept calling themselves Mark. He was like, Mark this, Mark that. All the slides that Mark went on it, I was like, oh, awesome, perfect infringement. Um, took my notes. And then there was like an hour gap between the next talk that I wanted to go to, which was our client. So I was like, what do I do in this gap? I don't want to talk to anyone. So I just stayed in my seat. And there was another talk that was going on. So this guy stepped up on the stage. And he started talking, presenting his business. And he pulled up a slide. And on the slide, he had a logo of German Mark, which is our client. US, this gets confusing, but US Mark was the company speaking before him. And he just said, oh, you know, German, this company Mark is my client. They just spoke before me. How great is that? What a coincidence. So he himself didn't even know who his own client was. And he thought the guy speaking before him were his client, but actually that was US Mark. I was like, okay, perfect example of tribute. Wow. You know, wrote that down, took some notes left the talk, phoned up the office, and was like, this is what's happened. What do I do? And the partner on the case was like, okay, it's brilliant. It's good evidence. But I need you to go and speak to him and get him to say that to you to your face. I was like, huh? <laughs> he was like, try to, you can't lie to him, but don't, you need to avoid telling him what you're doing and why you're doing it. Just have an organic conversation and somehow get him to say that US, call US Mark his client because his client is German, like, Okay, I was like, okay, this is a bit of a challenge. I've only been in the job for like three days. So, so wow. Approached this guy in the lunch break. I was like, oh, hi, how are you? What a, what a great talk you had. Just made a small talk for 10, 15 minutes. Um, just tried to learn, learn about him, be his friend. And then I was like, oh, what a coincidence it was that, you know, you had your, you said, Mark's your client. They spoke before you. Is that right? And he was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. They spoke before me. That's my client. And I was like, oh, did you know they were speaking before you? Did you plan this? How did it come about? He goes, oh, I just looked at the agenda before I did my talk and I saw that it was due to the form. I'll drop it. I'm like, okay, this guy's definitely confused. I've got it explicitly. He said it to my face. Went back to the office. I have to draft a witness statement. So I put it all together. And then a few weeks later, they were like, if we give this to the other side, they're going to interrogate this guy. So our team, the partners and the senior associates were like, we need to contact him and get him to verify the witness statement and approve it before the other side see it. They're like, how do we do it without intimidating? They all looked at me and they were like, hey, you're the most junior person on the case. You call it and you were one who spoke to him. I was like, oh, okay. So I had more senior people taking notes for me whilst I led this call with this, with this witness and basically got him to verify what I'd said. He was quite scared at the time. He was like, am I in trouble? We're like, no, 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 you're not in trouble. You're just a witness. It's not experience. It's not criminal either. Don't worry. Just need you to say if these facts are true. Um, and so he kind of cleared it, said, yep, all good. And then that was a key piece of evidence in court. And there was a moment where they said, I might be cross-examined. And I got excited. I was like, brilliant. I'd love to be cross-examined. And everyone in the time was like, you definitely don't need to be cross-examined. It's the worst thing. Um, I wasn't luckily in the end. Um, um, but we won the case. So yeah, I loved that. That was a pretty cool case. Wow. That is awesome. Also, it sort of allowed you to play out this, you know, little mini life of being a spy. If, if you know, you know, like really, you got to go in there and sort of, gather evidence surreptitiously that's that's very very cool what a, you can't if you start like that i mean that is peak uh legal work right there i uh, know it didn't it couldn't be that for that's probably why i left it's like i've reached the pit <laughs> that's that's so cool um and so so you i guess you stayed internally well first of all I, i'm imagining you as like you know this junior associate has done all so, somehow accidentally stepped into providing really important information, evidence, and sort of taking the lead role in this in this case. 
I imagine you kind of getting a standing ovation from the office and everyone saying, good job, patting you on the back. Was there anything like that at all? Or they were like, great, here's your next case. Uh, well, I think they'd been working on it for a couple of years. So my bet was just you know, a small piece of it. Well, in, the you know, in this, for, for the purposes of this show, your bit was the thing that, you know, <laughs> that, that, that uh, got the case over the line. So that's awesome. Um, one of, uh, you know, one of the things that I guess is interesting is when folks go uh, from outside counsel to, to in-house, you know, very briefly, I guess, what was your experience like when you went eventually from firm to, you know, working um, uh, in, in, you know, in-house? Just a little bit of like, what kind of, did that give you any new or different perspective on being a legal professional before you eventually, you know, went on to be an entrepreneur? Yeah, definitely. I mean, it was an interesting role. So I went to a trade body that represented the music industry. So it was a hybrid role because I was acting as in-house counsel for the trade body. So dealing with things like employment, law, data protection, commercial agreements, all the stuff that the company has to deal with. That was kind of half the job. And the other half of the job was representing the record labels. So it was still kind of like the outside counsel plan, acting as a lawyer to them in relation to copyright infringement. So we were still doing litigation. I was still filing claims and, you know, suing companies who are allowing people to download illegal music. Um, we even supported a case in the Supreme Court, which was pretty cool. So I got to go to the Supreme Court. Um, so it was a bit mixed, but it was definitely different from the in-house side because I think I'd never done some key areas in law before and suddenly I'm expected to be the expert and deal with data. GDPR was coming in at the time and they were like, all right, who in the office wants to deal with GDPR? We're only a three-person people team. What general counsel and three of us. Um, and so the general counsel, he was like, all right, who's dealing with this? And the other two lawyers were more senior than me. They were on the commercial side. I was on the litigation side. And they just looked at me and they're like, you're doing this. I was like, oh, I'd have to figure out what GDPR is and data protection. Make sure this whole company is compliant. Everything we do. Um, so, yeah, it was a completely different experience to being in private practice, like outside counsel. Um, but I think it was a really good learning learning curve, especially because also I got to sit, on, sit in on board meetings draft minutes, I was with all different types of, um, you know, like senior people in the record label. We got to get strategic insights and understand how a business is run as well, um, which is very valuable experience. Yeah, definitely. Um, and, and probably something that I'm assuming you can take with you at least to some extent to when you eventually launch your, launch your business. Um, so I guess, how did you transition from that you know, to building what was Centuro Global, you know, when you were working, what was the name of the, the trade organization? Uh, BPI. BPI, right. So when you were at BPI, you know, was there a moment or was there an experience that you had or did you already have an itch to start a business? Like, how did this come about? Because, you know, from the outside looking in, I might say, all right, you were working in intellectual property law, you know, both as an outside uh, attorney at, at a big firm and then sort of internally as well, you know, around the world of intellectual property. How does one transition from that to the world of global mobility, which of course has a lot of business and immigration and other law um, built into it, but of course also has a lot more to it. So, you know, what, was there a moment or just, or an idea or an experience that sort of made you start to think in the direction of, huh, there's something here that I want to build and work on, you know, that eventually led you to, to leaving your, your career as an attorney. Yeah, so when I was working at the law firm in the UK, you actually spend two years in where you spend six months in four different departments and then you specialize. So before I ended up specializing in IP, 
Um, so I did, I did a year, uh, the two years in IP. And then the other two areas I did were general dispute resolution, but then also commercial um, and sports law. So in that experience, I actually ended up managing a lot of international clients and looking after them on global projects. So we, I don't know if I can say the names, probably won't say the names just to be safe, just in case. Sure. But, you know, there were a couple of huge, massive tech companies that I was looking after. And even though I was junior at the time, I was literally put on the case as the main frame of contact for the client. So I'd be dealing with like 60, 70 countries. And we'd have, even though we were an international firm with offices around, I don't know, 30 odd companies around the world, we would still use local counsel because we didn't have people everywhere and we didn't necessarily have specialists even in the country we were in. So I was managing all these different firms around the world. I don't have an access. I was given this access spreadsheet. These are the local laws in each of these countries. I'd have to check in, phone up the council, emails, what are the requirements here? I'd have weekly catch-ups with the general counsel of the client. I'd be like, okay, in Q8, you need to do this. I need a power of attorney. We've got to legalize this document. Um, these are the local industry laws you need to comply with. These are the steps you need to take. The whole thing was so complex, long-winded. I'm working out an Excel spreadsheet. I'm working out one of the biggest law firms in the world. What is this? There's the tech resonating with some um, And, you know, we're using all these local firms and they're just relying on us to give them the work for them where, where you know, charging way more to the client than, than they would be charging us. So there are all these different things I saw and I was like, a lot of inefficiencies here. It's not the best experience for the client. There's inconsistency of service, depending on which provider you use around the world. So there are all these issues. And I was like, there's got to be a solution to this. But anyway, I carried on with my legal career, went in-house, did that for a year and I remember a few months here and a quarter. Um, but after a year, I kind of got itchy feet and I was like, okay, I'm enjoying my job, but I'm kind of want to move on to the next step. Do I go back to a big law firm or do I start my own business? Um, and so I had that kind of moment where I was like, what do I do? So I started applying, had a few interviews at law firms and they all went well, had a couple of offers. And then I just thought, actually, I'm at this moment of my life where I've got savings, I've saved up. So I felt comfortable enough to take a risk where I thought, okay, I can look after myself for a year or two without salary. I'd have to live frugally, but am I willing to make that sacrifice? Um, and I just thought, okay, worst case, it doesn't work out. I'll go back to an offer. I'm a qualified lawyer. Bernie. What's the big deal? Let me take the risk now. the time. And the idea I had is not actually quite what we're doing as Centurion now, but kind of is. So I got a bit carried away. I got a bit too ambitious. And I was actually giving a lot of legal advice to startups as well on the side. Um, and so I was advising them on everything from, you know, how do you register a trademark? How do you set up? How do you, uh, what big agreements do you need? What's your fundraising? How do you go through that process? So there's all this elements. So I thought, okay, there's a big gap in the market. We need a one-stop shop where any company can come from seed, whether they're seed, scaling, going global or exiting or IPOA. And all of those need not just legal advice, they need like investors, they need tax, accounting, they need but this is a, a network advising different experts in different industries. And you know, you've got accelerators, you've got incubators, you've got law firms, all these different pieces, and everyone needs all those pieces. But what if there was one community, one platform where everyone could connect and get together? Um, so I was like, okay, I'm gonna do this. Set it's so big. And I'm like, well, how, where do I even start with this? Yeah. And I'd never built a set platform before. So I'm like, all right, I need to build a technology. I need to find a network, build this. I already had a network. I needed to build a bigger network, build this community, and then find clients, and then provide legal advice. I was like, okay, this should be tough. Um, so about a year in, 
I started to think, okay, maybe I should just focus on one area. Um, and I guess global expansion was the obvious area because so many companies have global needs. I've kind of got experience working with international clients. Um, people in the team had experience in working with international clients. I say that at the time that I made this decision, there were two of us. Um, so in January 2020, I think around January 2020, I was like, okay, even though we we built all these, des- we made designs for this platform, we have networking in it, we have all these features. We hadn't built it, but we designed it. And I was like, I know we've invested a lot in this, but let's just scrap it. Not scrap it, we'll keep it. Maybe we'll use it in the future. Right now, we're going to double down on global expansion. So we almost started to get in a set, even though it's well, in the roadmap, and that's always part of what we do. So I started mapping out what, what does this mean? What could this platform look like? And then this little thing called COVID happened. Um, I was like, oh, no one's traveling. No one's relocating. No one wants to set up instant. Everyone's saving. And I was like, okay, it's fine. How long will this last? It might not last too long. People will want to, will be itching to get back to business. So I just thought, I'm going to press ahead, build this platform. So started talking to developers, um, had a vision of what it would look like. Um, and it just kind of grew from there, essentially. Wow. COVID was such a crazy time for, you know, starting a business um, because on the one hand, you know, there were people who were saving up money and businesses too that were maybe potentially willing to invest in, in, in you know, kind of double down and invest in growth. On the other hand, this travel ceased and, and international trade was put on hold and, you know, sort of there's refactoring of what people were producing, you know, people shut down factories and turned them into PPE production lines versus whatever they were doing before. Um, but it's interesting because I, I remember at least from a small business standpoint in the U S uh, it was historic, uh, creation of small like tax IDs for, for new businesses, you know, and, and in a way, some of the biggest businesses today are typically were born out of, you know, 2008 financial crisis, et cetera. Um, you said that you had a partner. Was this somebody who you were working with from the beginning? Was it somebody who you were practicing law with? I mean, can you share a little bit about sort of how that came up? And, and I say this, you know, I ask this question because a lot of times when people have an idea, you know, they'll sort of go at it alone. And then they get to that moment, like you said, where, where okay, they've thought through this idea, but then they take a step back and say, wow, this is huge. I don't know where to begin. I don't know what I'm going to be good at versus somebody else. And it can get overwhelming and then they end up not doing anything at all. So, you know, yeah. how did you come across or, 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 you know, how did you find your partner and sort of what was that conversation like in the beginning when you had nothing but an idea? Yeah. So I guess when I was kind of trying to do the startup incubator whole journey to everything, um, I was kind of pushing that myself. So you don't really have a co-founder in that sense at that time. Um, but what ended up happening was like, so my co-founder is almost like a mentor, I guess. So when it got to that point where I was like, you know what, we should double down on global expansion. Um, so she actually founded Union Chase. Um, so she had phenomenal experience in immigration, setting up around the world, global mobility, market entry, entity setup, and amazing commercial minds. So she had, I don't remember the timeline, but I think she'd, she, she sold Newland Chase to CIBT and then stayed on, helped grow it more. And then she was kind of ready for a fresh change. So kind of brainstormed it with her. She had plenty of ideas, obviously, especially in that kind of immigration. So mobility field, I had a lot of ideas more on the general kind of legal side, global expansion. So I was thinking of it from more of the industry and of how do you comply with local industry laws and you set up entities or tax implications. And then it's just a natural fit. It's a one-stop 
shot and we just thought this could be huge and this was like before covid it's just a couple of months but we didn't know what covid was but um and then with covid that just completely transformed everything from a remote work perspective as, as well as in a lot of other different ways so that was just kind of timing wise i guess we kind of are lucky because we were sort of ahead of the game um and then when it happened it's just fueled crazy demand for, for the services which i'm sure we'll get into at one point yeah wow that's great and i think it also goes to show the importance of having a complimentary co-founder um you know there's no right or wrong there people have their own theories as to how to find the best co-founder but certainly one way that works is to find someone who has complementary knowledge skill and network and, and sort of can to where the combination of the two of you is sort of greater than the sum of its uh of its of its whole or the sum of its the whole is greater than the sum of its parts is what i'm trying to say yeah. here um I want to take a, just a quick uh, quick break here for a second. We have a couple of questions here from um, Emily Stewart. This one, uh, I want to know which of the 60 countries that has visited that he would want to most relocate to. I actually want to maybe save that one for the end because I think that's a fun one that I'd love to learn about. Um, and, and yeah, Emily's asking some really great questions about some of the trends predicted for 2023. We're going to get there towards the end. That's certainly... Um, part of uh, where I'm curious to hear about your thoughts on, on where things are going. Uh, but right now in the story, you're sort of in the beginning stages uh, coming up with this idea. You know, you sort of now have a vision that that's a little more pointed towards global expansion. And we're in the beginning of COVID, where it's just suddenly, you know, the world is shut down. You have this co-founder and, and mentor who has crazy experience and for what it's worth, has built a large business that was exited you know, that they had exited, which is, you know, in a great experience in and of itself. What were some of those initial steps that you took? And like, what did, what were you building out in the very beginning, you know, when COVID was just ramping up? Um, because obviously at that time, you could, you kind of had your predictions, but we also, no one knew what was happening. I mean, that was when Zoom was going, you know, Zoom, the, the platform was skyrocketing because everyone was working remotely. There was, you know, there were so many conversations about, is the office, you know, the concept of the office just going to be uh, something of the past, you know? I mean, and, and the world was a big unknown. Um, so kind of what were you thinking about and what were you, what ideas and concepts were you leading on at that time while you were building this company? So I think the way it kind of started was we, we spent a good year doing a lot of market research, but not just market research, also putting together content and data which we needed for our platform so the kind of things that we picked up on early are still pretty relevant today as trends so what we were seeing was that if you think about immigration and global mobility that is kind of an entry point to a region so someone has to physically move it. but why are they moving well, what, what are the reasons so the company is selling there for a reason so they'd either want to bid, want to tender, they're working on a project, or it's a company that's just expanding into a new territory and they want to set up their presence. So there's a commercial reason for that relocation. So what does the company need to do to achieve that? Well, do they need to set up an entity? Do they just want to send people in? Are there alternative ways to hire them? This was kind of before EOR blew up and we knew what that was. Um, and it was kind of a case of there are different legal issues, different legal consequences, compliance elements to that. Then when you send someone in, you're sending an individual. And that's a person who has personal needs and very personal thing doing a relocation. So there's this kind of 
two sides to the coin. There's all the corporate needs, whether it's legal, tax, corporate structure, commercial goals, how do they get in cost effectively and so on. Then you've got the individuals who, if they, let's say it's a senior individual, you're in the center of location to work on the project. If they can't go, maybe that project can't happen. Or they're going to head up this office. If they don't go, it can't happen. So you need to help them go, how to make it easy for their families. If they've got a spouse, kids, how are you going to get them set up and make that experience smooth? So we were like, there's nothing that exists that covers the whole infrastructure of catering to a company and an employee and making sure the whole thing goes smoothly on both sides. So we thought, let's build a platform. Well, I mean, we we're kind of already doing it anyway, the original vision, but let's have a platform where, you know, we can cover all goals. So we, the market research we did was really interesting because we spoke to a lot of big corporates. We spoke to a lot of fast growing scale-ups and small companies as well who had international requirements. And every single, literally every single company, I don't think there was a single one that didn't have definitely over 50 companies today, probably hundreds now, because it's been a few couple of years. Um, every company says the same thing. They all say different things too, but there was a pattern. And they all identified, well, identified three core problems amongst every conversation. So they all wanted access to information. So like, look, we want to go into a market. We want to know, how do we do it? Do we, what are the local laws that we need to comply with? What are the issues? What are the industry laws? What are the immigration laws? What visas are applicable? So how do we get information? They, they all said they Googled it or, you know, they don't know if they, they can trust the information you're finding. They spend hours going to different websites. It's up to date. It's accurate. And then the only other solution was you go to a professional. So you go to a law firm and you go to, a, you know, a big consulting firm and they give, they give you a report or they say, we'll give you a report. It takes weeks. It costs thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands. Could be a hundred page report. You don't want to read. The first page says, yeah, you can't do it. And you're like, okay, well, I'm not going to read the other nine, nine to nine, isn't it? Just pay thousands for this. What was the of that? Um, so we thought, okay, there's a lack of access to up to date, accurate information available at fingertips. People just want to click buttons. We're in an era of tech now. We're in an era of like short attention spells. People just want things fast. Um, so that was one key problem. And then a lot of companies then also said when they need access, they need access to expertise. So they're like, we want consistent advice globally. You know, when we're trying to find different providers or we work with a big international provider, the international providers also tend to outsource some of it. Things are slow, advice varies. So they were struggling to find experts in different jurisdictions that maybe they've not been to or they weren't happy with experts in the jurisdictions they were in. And then once you do have that network of experts, the third issue is how do you then manage all those systems and all that data? They all have different platforms and all the different CRMs. Clients got their own CRM. Just everything's all over the place. So these are the kind of three core patterns that we identified. We were like, there's got to be, there's, a, there's got to be a solution. If we can create a one-stop shop platform. We can log in. There's tools. There's information. There's data. And you can just click buttons. There's even a live chat, so you can speak to experts and get quick answers without having to pick up the phone, book in a meeting with a lawyer. It's in a week. They ask you questions. They'll send you some advice in another week. It's just instant. And then you get the advice, then you're like, okay, I want to go ahead. I need a visa. I want to set up an entity. I want to, I need tax advice, whatever it is. You request it on the platform. There's some information we gather, a bit of back and forth. And then we make sure that, you know, one of your bigger commercial goals, there might be more than what you've put on the platform. And then the execution, the delivery of the work happens. And we have a global network of providers who are essentially an extension of our team. We've vetted them, put them through an entire process. They've got KPIs that know exactly how to deliver. And then the client gets a dashboard where they can see everything. 
you've got a global portfolio. Maybe it's one country, it could be 10 countries. We're going to Japan, we're going to Spain, we're going to France. In Japan, we're setting up an entity. You can see the whole status, who's doing it locally. Everyone gets an account manager from Centuro. You can see whether what, what stage the entity setups at. Are we relocating five people? What's happening with their visas? What stage is that? We've created kind of milestones and steps and everything. So a client can just log in. You can see everything you need to know without speaking to anyone. You can get information. You can see the services, track every. And the key in this is, when you look at most commercial organizations, you've got a CFO who's in charge of budget and financing and strategy. You've got salespeople who are or commercial directors who are like, we need to win this project. You've got general counsel. How do we comply with the local industry laws? You've got HR looking after the people and immigration, education, duty of care, et cetera. All of those different people, this is one platform that caters to all of them and they can all access everything. And now you've got full visibility, transparency, everything's quicker, more efficient. Everyone's aligned. And you can see all the vendors on the system who are also aligned. So there's no, everything's fully transparent to make sure everything goes smoothly, accurately. Because one vendor could get a piece of information be missing something and do the wrong piece of work because they didn't have another piece of information. They didn't, have, they didn't think to ask the question. But when you've got full visibility of a life cycle and all the people engaged, that makes it far smoother. So that's kind of what we set out to build and what we did build. Um, we launched the MVP last year and then we launched a fully blowing version in January of 2022. So it's been about 11 months and traction this year has just been insane because I mean, you never know how or you do as much as you can to see if the market will like it, but you don't really know until you start testing it. Luckily for us, it's been a really positive response because I think even at, when we were at ERC a few weeks ago, uh, think, were, you at, were you at the tech the tech discussion? Yeah, we were talking about how there's lots of different products out there and we need to unify them and clients don't want multiple systems, they just don't want. And I was thinking, yeah, you don't need to integrate lots of them. You can just use Ask and we are just one. Yeah, I do remember that there was just there, there was a comment from somebody in the audience saying, you know, we, we wanted a one-stop shop, uh, you know, and, and there was discussion about APIs and, so, you know, that were that are horizontal or they're vertical, and then you have horizontal integration where there's another layer that sits on top of everything else. Um, did you was it? How do you go about you know the process of building that roster, that network of providers? Because you know, in a way. The value of a company or a platform like Centuro Global is really, it in a way, all, only as valuable as the providers you can connect your clients to, right? They need access to information around tax and corporate setup and immigration, you know, for, for the UK, they need to have all of those different folks in their fingertips. So, you know, how does that, how do you do that, you know? Um, or, or I guess you did it. So like, was it tough? And, and, and how do you feel about building that marketplace? So it was, it was tough. It's amazing. It was easy in other ways. So one, I already had worked with tons of law firms and other experts globally. So I had people I knew I could reach out to, even if I'd only spoken to them once in the past. I had a name, look at what used to work with you when I was at Red and Burn and so on. Um, and then obviously my co-founder had a great network. And the way that we did it was we're trying to do something really fresh and different at Centuro. So We've got a tech platform. We service clients. So we don't say, oh, we've got a product or we've got services. We just provide solutions. So whatever your problem is, we have a solution. So that's how we pitch it to clients. And then, so the vendors and service providers, we actually run it as a proper network. So when, when I was approaching a lot of these firms on the early days and some of the team, the way we pitched it and the way it is, is that we targeted 
mid-sized boutique firms typically, um, depending on the country. If it's a small country, you'd have to go for the biggest firm anyway, um, because we wanted the best providers. But we picked ones who are typically national or at most regional. So they don't have a global presence. And they often, one of the kind of quirks of law, which not everyone may know of law firms, is that if you're doing big, trying to deal with big international clients, they will typically go to an international law firm. So those mid-sized firm, national firms, they tend to get work drip-fed from the big firms. So like when I was at Bird and Bird, we would use local firms in jurisdictions we weren't in. So that's how that firm would get a multinational client. But a multinational client doesn't want 20 firms. That's why they go to a Bird and Bird, for example. So my argument was to all these firms, hey guys, look, you're the best in your country. Why, why do you need to rely on the big, big firms? Join this network collectively. We're going to have the best firms in the world, and you're better than those big international firms because you're the best in your country. You know it inside out. You're going to give world-class service. But collectively, any client that comes to you, we can service them globally. You don't have to say, I need Ecuador, I need to Japan. You can say, yeah, I can cover you in 150 countries. I've got an extension on my team through the Centura Global Network. So they people bought into that. And I said, not only that, but we're going to bring tech Everything is going to be straightforward. This isn't traditional referral of, okay, yeah, I'm going to pass you on to John Smith and here's an email. We've got a system where you can put your clients on there. They're only for you. No one else needs to see them. And when they need extra support, you plug in who you need to plug in and they can see it on the system. They can track everything. Chat's on there. Everything's fully joined up. You have control almost. And the client's getting an amazing tech-enabled experience. You're in a global network. You're winning multinational clients. If you want to go for an RFP and respond to and then so on, you know, you can say you can cover all these countries you've never covered before. And not just the legal, but also the tax, accounting, immigration, all the different areas, hmm. which traditionally they, they shouldn't exist in silos. The client wants a solution. They don't come to you because they want, I mean, they come to you when they need visas, for example, but they come to you, there's a bigger picture. They need all these things. If you can cover them all, you're kind of laughing. So I kind of sold the vision. We haven't built the tech at that point. I told them what we were doing when people bought into it pretty quick. And they were like, we love this concept. We're keen we'll support you, we'll join. So it was pretty fast traction on the network side. And we ran it as a network, held events and so on. And then in the background, we were building the tech. And then obviously the network could share referrals with each other. So business was being done. People were happy. We were growing. And then, then we launched the tech. And then we were like, man, we can put the clients from our perspective because we'll pitch our own clients and put them on the platform and then just scale it from them. Can you share a little bit? I mean, you've kind of talked about this, but what's the experience of a company right now that, you know, goes on and becomes a, a is it, is, or I guess I should back up a little bit. Who is your target audience as a, I guess, paying user or as a user for Centura Global? Is it the company that you're going after the employer, uh, that kind of startup or scale up or, or whatnot? Um, so it's typically actually, so we, in my mind, it was originally. Scale up. So scale up means when you search, you don't know what they're doing. A lot of founders these days are millennials, even Gen Z. Um, they want to click button. They want to do things fast. There's loads of funding, at least back in 2021 there was. Um, lots of need for this. Um, but what ended up happening was we did we, we do support scale ups completely. But what's happened is scale ups typically have a need in a moment in time, whereas enterprise have constant need. Mm. And it just so happened that enterprise handful started approaching us and we weren't sure we were ready at the time but we we're like we're gonna we're gonna figure this out we've not been asked to be ready to make ourselves ready um and we kind of spoke to them showed them the tech they were like yeah we want this um so we started using it and then we were like okay 
this works really well for enterprise. Why are we nervous about this? This is actually a really good solution. And let's focus on that. So we cover both scale-ups and enterprise. Um, and because the immigration global mobility aspect has been the, probably the biggest thing that's taken off from the enterprise side, probably because of remote work, COVID, as an international remote work, people want to work from anywhere. Um, and employers are now being more flexible. And you're getting companies that, are, that have been born in the past few years or who've just shifted since COVID. It is a fully remote policy. You don't have to, there is no office. Um, and that's short crazy demand. But, you know, if you look at the EOR industry, that has blown up because of this. But predominantly, they just do the payroll and employment contract. What about the visa and the immigration? So that aspect is complex. It's not as simple as just apply for a visa, you get it. You know, there's the entity can you sponsor in that country? How do you get the individual in? Am I the individuals in? Has there really policies? And I think traditionally, one of the, I don't know, from what I've been told, because I've never worked in global mobility for a corporate, but for what I have since civil mobility managers, one of the criticisms that employees have is they have to deal with like 10 different people. You've got the accommodation, you've got the visa piece, then all your staffs and your dependents, you're constantly asking questions, what's going on, is this happening? Um, then you've got accommodation, shipping your goods, and there's all the different pieces and you're dealing with all different people and it's not a great experience. And nowadays, if you look at millennials, probably more Gen Z, I feel like we're both millennials, I think we're probably okay, but maybe the new next generation of people, we want everything easy, quick, great experience. Otherwise, you know, there's a war for talent now. People, companies are finding it harder to retain people, people move quicker. So traditionally it might have been, you go on a three-year assignment, go to a location you maybe don't want to go to. Now it's like people just want to go where they want to go to. They want to go to Bali, Mexico, Dubai, Shanghai. Um, so I think I saw a quote, I can't remember the exact words, but it was like in the past, um, people would move to the job. Now the job moves to the people, something like that. So it's a case of I can work from anywhere. I'll do this job from a beach in Bali. I'm not, you can't do that for everything, obviously. But as an example, I'm going to work from Bali. Whereas in the past, it was like, all right, I need you to go work on assignment in, I won't name anywhere because I don't want to confess anywhere. <laughs> but in the next location, I might not be that great. Um, but people want a quality of experience now. So it's changed. And there are a lot of requirements. And the company needs to know, do we set up an entity? Can we use an employer record? How does it affect our corporate structure and so on? So there's a lot, a lot, and there's no one-stop shop. And apart from us, I guess, so far that I'm aware of. Um, so that's the kind of problem we're trying to solve, and that's where it's really taken off. I really appreciate that you shared the fact that, you know, you were kind of nervous to take on corporates. And understandably, right? I mean, corporates are, you know, they, they, they have the budget to spend, and there are a lot of expectations that come with a bigger budget. And there are more people implicated. There's more. There are more moving parts. Um, so it, it's it's cool. You know, sometimes it's easy to look at. You know, this is a, a bit of a cliche, but it's easy to look at a company as an overnight success. But you, you don't realize that in order to get to that moment, there were a lot of steps along the way where you were unsure, you were nervous, you maybe you know had to <clears throat> bring in something that you never expected out of out of yourself or out of others. So um, it's it's cool that and it's wonderful that it worked out in a way that, you know, you realize, wow, actually we're quite prepared for this level of scale. And if anything, we're, we're better suited for it than, you know, sort of the not necessarily constant needs of a startup or a scale up. Um, yeah. I want to ask you, um, yeah, go ahead. sorry. I was just going to say at that point, I mean, when something like that happens, you have to shout out your team because 
you know, everyone comes together and you're like, wow, how are we going to do this? And everyone works super hard, puts their brains together, their minds together. And we think we're going to find a solution. We're going to make this work. Not that we're just going to make it work. The kind of ethos we have is we're going to make this a world-class experience. Um, otherwise we don't want to do it because we want clients to be happy and satisfied. So I think that goes to the teams, the team that we've built and the fact that we've scaled quickly and down to them and the hard work. So just wanted to throw that out there. Yeah, no, it's always, you know, the team is <clears throat> team make teamwork makes the dream work. And I know it's stupid cliche saying, but I mean, genuinely, uh, true. I, I, I want to, I want to ask you maybe a quick question about, you know, cause I, I also want to hear about sort of where, you know, what your vision is for the company, um, and kind of what you, your thoughts are about the industry as well. Like you had a comment earlier about that, but I'm curious as an attorney, right? You're a lawyer by trade. Has it been difficult for you to shift into becoming the CEO of a technology platform? I mean, did you know how to code? I mean, did you, how did you, how did you tackle that sort of shift in your, in, in your skills and in your responsibilities? Uh, no, it was very hard. I had no idea what I was doing on day one. <laughs> I was like, I need to figure this out. I have no clue. At first, I thought I'd start on the side of doing the evenings, but when you're working as an attorney, you don't really have evenings. So. Um, it was kind of just go for it. I did a lot of reading. You, I think the best learning you do is on the job. And I think my personality, as much as I loved being a lawyer, I wanted to be a lawyer, I felt quite restricted in a way. So I'd have ideas, I'd have suggestions. Let's change this. Let's do this. Let's introduce this tech. Or why don't we pitch to clients differently? Or why don't we do X, Y, Z? And everyone would always say, oh, that's a great idea. But now we do it this way. And it was kind of, I felt like the legal industry, the big law firms, at least at the time, we're a little bit behind the times, resting to change. And I just felt like there's so much we could be doing. I had this itch to go and create and build something. And I think not every lawyer has that personality trait. Like even when I left, literally all my friends from law were like, what are you doing? What are you doing? Starting a business? Like, how are you going to do that? Also, what? You just spent all that, all those years training, qualifying, working. Now you're going to go do this. And I was yeah. like, yeah. And I remember I went to an alumni event at Bird and Bird and had a, had a badge and it was like CEO. And all the partners came over to me and they were like, you're a CEO now, what is it? <laughs> um, and it was just a crazy experience. So I think you learn on the job, but I think my personality trait was I love change, I love variety, I love meeting people, I love innovating. So I think that picked up, you just, you're all, I think you can never, you'll never know anything. You can be the most experienced CEO in the world in working for 50 years, but I just feel I've, I haven't done that yet, obviously. I've only been doing it for three, four, three years or so. Um, but I feel like every single day you learn something new and you'll never stop learning. And that's one of the best parts of the job. Yeah, definitely. Definitely agree. I mean, people have to start somewhere. And honestly, uh, a tech CEO who has a tech background might then struggle with something, some other part of the business, like, you know, working with people or understanding the business or financial side of things. You know, there's none of, uh, you know, nobody could be really perfect at everything, which to your point earlier is why shouting out and appreciating and having a team around you is, is so important. Um, so it's super, I mean, really exciting and, and also kind of an astronomical growth. It, it's, it's fascinating that you guys went from kind of idea to, you know, having a, I, I guess you could say MVP or, or early version of the company and suddenly stepped into this world of kind of enterprise, right? I mean, that's typically something people build over, build up to over time. Um, where do you see the company kind of 
going in the future, or perhaps maybe you're already building towards this. So maybe the better question is, as a company that's only a few years old, but already kind of, uh, you know, you, you've done a lot, you, you're working with some big clients, what are you building towards right now? So I think the kind of way that I see, I think I kind of touched upon this earlier, that, you know, when you look at the industry, you see immigration and global mobility, they kind of go hand in hand and everyone kind of talks about that. But then there is that whole other side. You've got law as well, corporate lawyers. They don't really interact. You know, you've got big law firms, corporate lawyers, tax experts. Then you've got global mobility tax experts. You've got people who do entity setup. It's quite fragmented. And what we're trying to do is actually create a global expansion industry. So every element of a successful global expansion comes together in a new way, in a fresh way. So everything we do, we're trying to do to improve processes, to make things more efficient. You know, I think last week, or was it this week, um, the world population hit 8 billion people. You know, that's a lot of people. There's issues around, you know, sustainability, there's issues around diversity. And how, what's the juxtaposition between companies entering new markets and carbon footprint versus sustainability? There's, there's a lot of issues there. So what we're trying to do, we're trying to say, there's a tech platform, there's a, not just a tech platform, there's a big human element to it as well. So we've got our internal team, the account management, we look after clients, plus our amazing member network. And the point is, we're streamlining everything. We're using local firms. We're boosting local economies. We're trying to help those firms attract talent so you don't have to go to those big international firms necessarily. We're trying to automate things so you don't have to physically travel to a location. You can use the tech to keep on top of things um, and streamline the processes. So the vision is really to kind of unify a global expansion industry, provide a one-stop shop solution and to really find a solution that helps promote better ways of doing business. Because the other thing is, I think my whole team is bored of me saying this, but as a McKinney statistic, which everyone was like, how many times do you say this? But 80% of new market entries fell. And if we can bring that number down, one of the UN Sustainable Economic Development Goals is you know, to boost those local economies, but also to help. If we can help founders from remote locations you know, scale and enter a new market. Because one of the biggest things you need is resource and people. You might not have access to contacts. You may not be able to afford the firms that enable you to do that. But if there's a solution that simplifies all of it and helps you grow and in a sustainable way, then you know, that's kind of the dream. So that's what we're trying to work towards and build um, and just automate as much as we can without, there's always a human expertise element, but the more you can automate and then add on that, expertise that just makes everything so much more efficient it's uh, a, a big goal um, but i think if you can build a new you know build a demand for a kind of a new type of service you know that's uh, that's the stuff of business lore right that that you want to do so I, I mean there's definitely there's definitely demand for this and, and like you said earlier the the idea of having a one-stop shop aligning with the trend of companies looking globally hiring locally, right? And sort of extending their global footprint uh, is 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 really catching on right now. So um, this seems like the right place at the right time, if, if you will, at least to, to some extent. Um, you know, as we kind of wrap up here, I, I wanted to ask you um, one specific question around suppliers. I mean, a lot of folks who listen to this show particularly, you know, might be, of course, there are corporates that may be interested but then there are also a lot of immigration lawyers and kind of RMCs and, and all sorts of people up and down the supply chain of international expansion, tax 
folks in different countries, lawyers, corporate lawyers in different countries, you know, is do you find that you're still expanding or or that there's still a need for more folks in the network, more suppliers on the ground, or do you feel like it's said or, or, or like how does that work here? And I guess I'm asking kind of practically speaking, if someone's listening to this saying, hey, this sounds interesting to me. I'm an expert in X that can be helpful for a company trying to, you know, whatever that global expansion means, but expand it to my country. I would be interested in kind of learning about or being part of Centuro Global. What do you say to those folks, I guess? Yeah, no, we're definitely looking for more more members, if that's the right word. So, yeah, these experts around the world, we're, we're always looking for excellent people, great advisors. I think the key is we're not a marketplace, so right. it's not like a big selection and we've got all these firms. We're very selective with who we bring on board, but the world's a big place. There's a lot of different areas of advice, and the key for us is having high-quality advice, but also responsiveness. So we need firms who are on the ball. You know, We can get an answer to a client within preferably 24 hours, but of 48 hours is typically kind of the SLA. But you know, we want good personalities as well because we want people we get on with and you know, work together um that the client will like working with and then that responsiveness is super key and then high quality advice so if anyone is listening that is interested and wants to maybe get involved then definitely open to having a chat that's awesome um yeah that that's great man and i'm, I'm excited for you guys and, and i'm excited for where the industry is going i think this is one of these tech companies that you know i wouldn't say that you're strictly in, in integration or global mobility technology but as you said and as I feel, that's that's step number one. If you don't get that visa, you know, in terms of moving people around the world, there is no, you know, step two or three. Uh, so I, I think there's a lot of overlap here, and probably the need for global, <clears throat> for for a company that's looking to expand globally, the need for immigration and then down, additional downstream services is is there. And so. Um, Sounds like Centuro Global is solving for that need. So, um, you know, congrats on everything you guys have built so far. Uh, we actually have a comment here from Osmo, who I believe is one of your teammates, right? Uh, yeah. uh, saying with the, with the aid of the podcast, <laughs> it's giving me a little bit too much credit here, giving us too much credit, but you're boldly going where no legal tech company has gone before. So, you know, listen, you got to shoot for the moon um, and sort of build to a big vision. So, I guess if I can can end here with a fun question, and, and, and I will bring this question up from a comment that was asked earlier by Emily, another one of your teammates. Um, I, I like to sort of end on something that's maybe a little bit kind of more personal and fun, but um, you, you've said you've traveled to 60 countries and you're clearly working with people from probably more than those 60 countries. Is there a place in your mind where you haven't been to that, you know, maybe in a different world or uh, uh, if you could start it all, do it all over again, you would want to relocate to and if so why that's a really tough question um i love traveling and i've been to there's so many countries i'd love to go to for very different reasons i think yeah. i would say somewhere in latin america i feel like i don't know where i've already been to argentina brazil and uruguay so i would want to say colombia or mexico because i've never been there and i've always wanted to go they've always been high on my list and i feel like latin is just such a powerful region and obviously each country is different but and people too easily refer to latin they are distinct countries but i feel like there's a big opportunity there it's a growing growing region a lot of good businesses coming out of there um plus i love spanish and i'm trying to learn and get scared <laughs> um for my time in argentina so probably let's say colombia nice yeah 
That's awesome. I've I've always wanted to I've always wanted to take a year off and and just sort of travel around uh, Latin America. So um, if you ever if you're there, maybe I can come meet up with you. I think it's it's very you know as Americans, whenever I would travel for more than a week, and I met folks who are traveling, you know, from elsewhere, and I would tell them that I'm American, they always joke and say, "Oh, so are you here for five days?" You know. So it's it, it's definitely a, a trend that Americans don't travel the world for too long. So I'd love to be able to break that trend um, and, and meet you there somewhere. Let's do it. Um, well, Zen, thank you so much, man, for coming on. This has been such a great conversation, and you know your story is really interesting. And I I love thinking about how sort of you came onto this. You thought about this idea from your professional experience and kind of brought on a partner. It has you know as you continue to learn about the industry from an immigration standpoint, building that in with your experience from kind of a legal um, and, and business standpoint is really exciting. And, and again, like I said, right now, I feel like this is the time for, for this kind of a service. Um, it's a kind of a confluence of really great events. So wishing you guys all the best and excited to continue to follow the business. And I know it's late. So thank you again for, for joining us late. And uh, thank you for to everybody for now, thanks so much, Robert. It's been a great conversation. Thanks for having me. Likewise. Um, appreciate you all again for being here. Thank you so much. Um, have a great night, great weekend, and see you all in a couple of weeks. Peace out. Peace out.